Welcome to Rising Stars, where Miriam Knight, publisher of New Consciousness Review, interviews exciting new voices in the world of progressive and transformational books, films, and ideas who offer intriguing perspectives on life, the universe, and everything in between. Join us as we celebrate the conscious awakening and explore many expressions of consciousness in action. Welcome everyone, I'm Miriam Knight and my guest today is Robert Meyer. Robert is the Frederick H. Ecker MetLife Insurance Professor of Marketing and Co-Director of the Wharton Risk Management and Decision Processes Center at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. His work has appeared in a wide variety of professional journals and books, including the Journal of Consumer Research, Journal of Marketing Research, Journal of Risk and Uncertainty, Marketing Science, and Management Science and Risk Analysis. He is the co-author with Howard Kunreuther of The Ostrich Paradox, Why We Underprepare for Disasters, which just launched yesterday. So welcome, Bob. Uh, thank you very much. You know, m- my listeners might be wondering if I've gone over to the dark side by interviewing someone who mostly helps big companies make more money. But you illuminate some fascinating aspects of human nature and behavior that really have much broader implications for society and our collective future. So I'm really delighted to have you on the show today. Well, I'm glad Let's to be here. Start. <laughs> Great. Let's start with the title. Why did you call the book The Ostrich Paradox? Well, the book is basically about, uh, if you really get right down to it, it's a book about why bad things happen to us. And, uh, and typically it's the case when bad things happen to us, whether it's, uh, um, uh, whether it's natural disasters or for families, auto accidents or whatever. Uh, people kind of often use the expression, uh, well, the reason is, is that we bury our heads in the sand when we're faced with risk because we don't want to think about bad things happening to us. So we deliberately ignore them and don't really do as much as we could to prepare for them. Uh, but I was sort of thinking, about this, and it occurred to me that, that actually that that uh, that saying is a little really inappropriate because actually, if, you know, as some of your listeners might know ostriches, in fact, don't bury their heads in the sand. Uh, they're they actually do quite the opposite. They're uh, even though they have uh, this these inabilities to to fly, they have great adaptation skills uh, to uh, compensate for that. They're incredible fast land animals. They have incredible powerful legs, and and they're uh, they're actually kind of well adapted to their limitations. And so it struck me that actually that in many respects, um, uh, one thing we can start to do to, as human beings to be um, a better preparing for things is to be more like ostriches in terms of thinking about what are our own limitations as thinkers and decision makers and, and try to adapt to those limitations rather than try to, to, to fight them. Hmm. Yes, you certainly wouldn't want to get a kick from an ostrich. No, no, so absolutely not. your book draws very heavily on examples of natural disasters like hurricanes and uh, earthquakes. How did you get interested in this area? 
Well, I uh, I grew up in South Florida, and uh, and down there, uh, this was uh, quite a number of years ago, uh, where they uh, it's an area which is prone to hurricane risks. And actually, my dad was in the insurance business, and after we'd have a hurricane, he would uh, drag me to work, and I would see kind of all the the trees down and all the destruction that was around with it. So I became just kind of really fascinated with with these extreme displays of nature. And uh, and then as I got older, I got interested in decision making, and which brought me into the field of marketing and thinking about how people make choices and so forth. So it just made sense to me to kind of link those two areas together and sort of uh, and, and thinking and thinking about how I can use the knowledge that I have about how people make decisions rather than trying to figure out how to get them to buy more products. How can we I can kind of use that knowledge to help people make them safer and and do things that sort of are positive ways to improve people's lives. And and in this particular case, it was one of thinking about how do you get people to avoid mistakes when preparing for big calamities and so forth. Mm-hmm. Well, we can all look back on things that we should have done in respect of any particular disaster, like people should have put up their storm shutters or evacuated or bought right, insurance. Right. So why do people tend to disregard warnings when they come through? Well, well, there's a lot of reasons for that, and that's in some sense is kind of the, the most purpose of the book is to try to kind of walk through the psychology of, of preparedness or maybe the psychology of lack of preparedness. And there's a, a wide variety of reasons. And, and I think at the core is this idea that, that, uh, that we have brains that have been evolved to deal with the, the mundane or to deal with the, the kinds of circumstances we can encounter on a day-to-day life, uh, uh, things like how to drive and how to know how to drive to work, what foods to eat, um, how to get into conversations with people. We have these um, beautiful brains that are optimized to be able to deal with these, these, these very, very frequent sorts of common situations. But what our brains are not very well designed to do is to, is to teach us or, or lead us to making good decisions for the events which are very, very rare. And that, uh, that, that, but if they do happen, they're fairly catastrophic. Uh, and so often what happens is that then we start to use a lot of uh, what we call heuristics or little rules of thumb that, that guide our decisions. We start to apply those to making decisions about rare events. Uh, we, we're actually often these same heuristics which work well in most of, most of life all of a sudden can backfire and lead us to making very bad decisions uh, when it comes to um, events which are, which are rare. Mm-hmm. Give us an example of some of the heuristics that we use. Yeah, sure. Uh, so in the book, what we do is we, we suggest that that there are six major puristics, and uh, maybe I can. Well, I'll talk a little bit about one, and then you can kind of say that that's enough, or you want to hear some more examples of them. Uh, like for example, if I was to say that there's one heuristic that people tend to use, or one bias that people have, is that of optimism. Um, and this is a great example of a of a of a tendency we have in the way we think, which normally serves us really really well. Um, uh, it, we're just a lot healthier if we have an optimistic outlook on life. Uh, there's a movement towards positive psychology that that, um, it, that um, uh, good mental health means good physical health, vice versa. And, and, and generally, it's good to be able to look on the bright side of life, to look at the good parts of people rather than the bad parts of people. But then think about what happens if you go ahead and you take that thing, which is normally very positive, and now you start applying it to something like a hurricane is coming in. Well, there you don't really want to think about the ways in which 
which I might, the hurricane might not come, okay? Because in some sense, that's a situation where you have to take your brain and flip it and say, all of a sudden, here's a good heuristic, and I want to turn this, this thing off. And now I want to focus on what the, what, that there's a good chance that the, the hurricane is going to hit me. And so that's what we have to kind of, and that has to be the thing which guides our preparedness. Mm-hmm. But the one that uh, you start off with in the book is amnesia. Uh, where we tend to have really short-term memory of the bad things. That kind of moves over into the positive outlook on life because you want to get on to um, rebuilding and and the positive. But uh, tell us about the effects of amnesia. You you brought some really telling examples into the book, like um, the Bolivar Peninsula. Yeah, well, one of the things that happens is um, uh, that that uh, that a lot of these these heuristics that we have, these biases, have, uh, as I said, have a good evolutionary purpose and so forth. Like, for example, and I think there's nothing is more fundamental, which is a great thing about about, about life, is the fact that we have short memories for pain. Um, and think about it: if, uh, uh, if if people had long memories for pain, uh, there wouldn't be people because women would remember how painful it is to go through childbirth, and and if they had perfect memory of what it was like, they might not do it again. Uh, so so mercifully, we <laughs> have me short that. memories yeah. for pain. Yeah, <laughs> and, and so mercifully, we have short memories for pain, which, as you said, uh, uh, you know, a kid falls off his bike and scrapes his, ne- his knee, and, uh, and and two seconds later, he forgets about it and allows him to get back on the bicycle again. And so normally. This is really a good thing. But unfortunately, um, there's, when we have these very rare events, it's actually helpful for us to remember just how bad it was. Um, so, for example, um, and I talk a lot in the book about natural disasters, but we can talk about this in, in all sorts of domains. Um, um, like often, typically what happens is when there's a disaster, uh, whether, whether, whether it's a flood or a financial meltdown, or, uh, or think about an auto accident where, uh, you, uh, where you were a teenager texting and driving like generally speaking like right after it occurs when the when the emotional memory of what this thing was like was so acute uh, we immediately instinctively uh, think about what we can do to prevent it from making sure it happened it doesn't happen again um, you know that, that, that people say well I'm absolutely never going to kids will never say I'll absolutely have learned my lesson I'm not going to text and drive uh, or in uh, financial regulations uh, everyone's up in arms and say we need to pass legislation to make sure this doesn't happen again. Or when people have experienced floods, the first instinct is to say, well, I've got to you know, elevate my house. I'm going to buy flood insurance and so forth. But what happens is, is that as time goes on um, between these events, and by definition, a lot of time is going to pass because these are rare events, uh, we, what we begin to forget is not the event itself, but we forget we lose the emotional memory. Um, we forget what it really feels like. And so, so everyone will remember the accident. Everyone remembers the 2008 meltdown. Everyone remembers the last hurricane that came through. What they tend to forget is the, what it really felt like to go through. So, it's a, and, and you need to kind of have that emotional memory of what it really felt like to motivate the action. So as a consequence, you have a, a situation where, where as time goes on, all of a sudden people's memories of these things uh, make it feel like, gee, it, I, I remember that storm, but now that I think about it, it really wasn't all that bad. And so so there's a little bit just less urgency to kind of see the need to pay a lot of money for an insurance policy or, or if a new storm is coming in, 
um, to spend a lot of money stocking up on supplies, that type of thing. And, and that could be really, it's another example of something which is normally quite good, but when you apply it to disasters, it can be quite bad. In the book, Bob, you mention uh, really six cognitive biases. We've discussed two. I'm wondering if some are more common than others in terms of their ability to influence our decisions. Well, um, they're, I like to think kind of all of them are things that are characteristics. They somehow some of them rear their heads, their ugly heads, a little more often than others. Um, uh, one of which, for example, we talk about is this idea of herding uh, or uh, groupthink when it comes to uh, uh, protective decisions, which in a lot of circumstances can be uh, really harmful. Um, uh, and and the idea is, is that often when it comes, because these events are very, very rare, uh, that often almost by definition, we don't have in our brains really well-stored rules for knowing what to do. So as a consequence, what, what, what do we do when you don't really know what to do? Well, the fairly common thing is to go look at other people and see what they're doing. Uh, so, for example, if in a, in a mundane context, if uh, you move into a new area, or let's say if you move into California and someone says, and you know something that there's is an area prone to earthquakes, and you hear that you can buy earthquake insurance, and you look it up and you find out it's kind of expensive, how do you know whether or not it's worthwhile to buy it? Well, um, probably what you're going to do is go talk to a neighbor and say, hey, do you have earthquake insurance? And so as a consequence, one of the, the big factors that drop and drives behavior is, in fact, copying other people or, or imitation. And cases that's really good if there really is knowledge in the neighborhood or knowledge in the community about what's the right thing to do. Unfortunately, it's often the case that the people we're talking to don't have any better of idea about what to do than we do, so you can kind of have kind of a crowd leading itself off a cliff. Um, and one of the particularly um, tragic ways in which we talk about in the book that, that this occurs, uh, a really vivid example, is nightclub fires. Um, uh, mm-hmm. We tell the story of, um, of uh, back in the, in the 70s, there was a uh, Beverly Hills Supper Club fire, which actually didn't occur in Beverly Hills, California. It was in Southgate, Kentucky, outside of uh, outside of Cincinnati. And um, this um, entertainer, who probably some older people will remember, named John Davidson, uh, was about to perform. And uh, and so people were crowded into the uh, into the main room. And all of a sudden, uh, a little bit of smoke began to kind of appear in one of the side rooms. Uh, and so a, a busboy came out on the stage and said, hey, there's some fi- there might be a fire in one of the next rooms. I think that you all folks ought to think about leaving. Well, but actually... Uh, the reaction would nor- you would think that people's reaction to like a fire warning would be to immediately race to the exits, and that's what causes all the deaths because too many people try to leave at the same time. Actually, what causes it is people do the opposite. They don't leave right away. Um, they sit there, and someone's saying there's a fire, and, and you don't really know is, is this going to be a bad fire? Am I going to really should I leave? And I don't want to look foolish running out the doors when everybody else decides to stay, and and all of this. So so basically, these critical moments are lost. Are lost uh, when you people could have escaped by sitting around and indecision, and it's collectively reinforced decision. So what happened in that situation is people waited for a little bit, looking for guidance from everybody else. Nobody moved, and then and then when, when the when the lights went out and the and the fire really did race over the place, then people began to leave to the exits, and by then it was too late. Mm-hmm. Yes, you mentioned the different. Uh, 
regulations that should have been observed that weren't observed. Uh, where do most policymakers go off the path when they are developing preparedness solutions? Well, well, often you know policymakers. Um, uh, so, so it's one of the things is that you can say, well, what? what well, the, the the other thing that happens is I think that we have a tendency to believe that uh, our government is looking out for us, and if there's regulations in place, that uh, that 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 the policymakers somehow are are doing the right thing. Well, the policymakers are are humans too, and and they're no real, they're no less immune to these biases and the mistakes as we are. So, so for example, in uh, in the uh, Beverly Hills Supper Club fire. Uh, after the fact, it turned out that the place didn't have proper sprinkler systems. It was um, uh, it was made of materials that were highly flammable. Things that, fortunately, um, you know, today we at least would hopefully would not find in in uh, most major entertainment facilities. Um, but at the time, people it, that the reality was is that people went in afterwards and said, "Well, how could you not have sprinkler systems? How could you not do this? How could you not do that?" And then the answer was, "Well, it just wasn't the norm to have them." Uh, that the builders of the of the facility would go ahead and 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 look to um, uh, look to other facilities and they didn't have it so then they assumed that it wasn't something you particularly needed so this group think uh, kind of keeps reinforcing itself um, um, and then the other problem that you have is often uh, with with policymakers, often they do a bad job of thinking about how to communicate risk to people. Um, so if you think about it, like who are the when you get a weather warning, who is there, who are the people that are designing the, the the weather warnings? Well, typically they're meteorologists and they're scientists, uh, and they're very very different than you and me in terms of how um, how we think about disasters and so forth. So often they'll get, they'll communicate warnings, but in a way that's not really helpful or understandable. Yes, I uh, noted that you illustrated different ways that you could couch the very same statistics in ways that would be more meaningful to people and they would be more likely to take action. Uh, Can you give us one or two examples? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, a, a couple, like for example, one thing is um, that's always a problem with very rare events. People are just really bad at dealing with uh, probabilities to begin with, or the likelihood that something's going to occur, and particularly when there's very small probabilities. Um, and so, so for example, it used to be the case. Uh, well, in fact, it still is the case that often that when uh, people communicate flood risk, they'll say something like, uh, "Well, you're in an area which has a one in a hundred chance of having a flood." Okay, and then they kind of hope that from that you will draw the conclusion that uh, that 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 I should get flood insurance. Well, uh, for most people, that one in a hundred doesn't mean anything, or it just seems like a a number that I I can pretty well ignore. Like, what does one in a hundred mean? You know, few of us end up living to one hundred, much less living in a house for a hundred years. So, uh, so I think that it's only going to a one in one hundred chance sounds like something I ought to ignore. Uh, Well, on the other hand. uh, but if you go ahead and you take that same number and you phrase it in a somewhat me- more meaningful way in, uh, on metrics that people kind of naturally understand, then all of a sudden it, it's something you can act on. So, for example, 
that same one in 100 number is the same thing as telling somebody that over the course of a 30-year mortgage, which is now that's something everybody understands, there's a one in four chance that you'll at least have one flood during that period. And all of a sudden, now you're talking about bigger probabilities over a meaningful period for, for over which people will live. And now at that case, it, it's now it becomes something which people can understand. And all of a sudden, people will look at that and they'll say, oh, wow, you know, while I'm living in the house, a one in four chance of getting a flood, that's, uh, I don't know if I want to run that risk. And so how do mm-hmm. I, how, you know, what can I do maybe to ensure against that? Mm-hmm. And the other point that I really resonated with was your mention of something called cog- cognitive dissonance, where you're feeling that, yes, there is a danger coming, and there might be a whole range of preparedness actions that you should be taking. So if you take just one, let's say there's a hurricane coming and you stock in food, then the cognitive, the, the irritation of the warning reduces because you've done something, but you right, really haven't right. done enough. Yeah, so this is part of what we generally call like a whole class of biases called simplification biases. And and what our brain is kind of really oriented to do is look for ways of easy way outs. Uh, um, mm-hmm. Given the choice between thinking about complicated things and looking at lots of information, our brains are kind of optimized to um, get the job done with as few thoughts as possible, saving mental energy. Um, and one of the ways, usually that's a good thing, but uh, one way, one context in which it can be bad is when there's lots of different, when we're preparing for a disaster, preparing for anything, there's um, uh, there's lots of different things you need to do. Uh, and so often what will happen is if we go ahead, as you, as you indicated, take like one of these steps, almost instinctively what our brain says is, hey, you've taken care of it. Okay. And it kind of forgets the fact that you really need to do, to do a bunch more. Um, so for example, why this can potentially be dangerous is that um, if anybody you know, has sort of lived in either, um, in, you know, you name the hazard, whether it's wildfires or earthquakes or hurricanes or whatever, um, often the emergency officials will, will give people preparation checklists. And, and so, uh, so for example, in, a, in an earthquake area, they'll say, is your home earthquake ready? And, and, and there'll be like two pages of things that you need to do to, to bolt your, your, uh, um, your bookshelves to the wall. You need to do this. You need to do that. You need to anchor this. You need to do that. And, and as a consequence, um, what happens is, is that those, in some sense, to be truly earthquake uh, uh, proof, you kind of really need to do all of those things. But what people will have a tendency to do is um, they'll go through that long list and they'll find one of them. They'll say, okay, well, I'm going to bolt my, um, my shells to my wall. They do that, and then basically your mind has a tendency to, to say, okay, job done, okay, and that's it. And then you don't do any of the other things. So when an earthquake does come, all of a sudden you do suffer a lot of damage because you didn't do the, the, the multitude of other things. So, so one of the things we recommend is to say, well, given that this is how people are, are, are uh, um, the, a bias that they tend to have or a mistake that they tend to make, don't give people like 20 different things to do. Um, say, given that we know people are going to make this mistake, uh, have um, a preparation lists that say, look, if you're going to do one thing, do this one thing. Okay, so at least we got everybody making sure that the one thing that they do do is the most important thing. Okay, and then the second down from that is to say, okay, once you've done that one, here's the second thing you can do and the third thing you can do and so forth.
kind so of is, is example, principle. Yeah, exactly. And and for example, this is a it's it's a it's a it's a tactic which um, um, is increasingly trying to be used in the area of energy conservation. Um, uh, that often pe- people you think about what what can I do to manage my household so that um, uh, that that I, I use less energy. Um, and so often people you'll get there's a million things you can do. Uh, you can you know turn off lights. You can do this. You can do that. Well, often what will, the, the danger is that people will do kind of maybe a low effort small thing. And then all of a sudden they think that they're, um, uh, they're they think that they're serving it, they're they're uh, they're saving energy because they unplug a couple devices when they're away for a couple of days. Well, that they, so in mentally they're thinking that they they're being good in terms of energy conservation when in fact that's not actually a very useful thing to do. Uh, and so so a lot of the attempts to 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 inform people is to say, look, if you're only going to do one thing, if you only have time to do one thing, this is the one energy conservation measure that gives you. The the most bang for the buck. Let's get everybody to do that one thing. Then we'll worry about getting them to do the second, third, and fourth things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you go into some really practical steps in your book that we're going to be covering in the next section of the interview. And you have a very useful behavioral risk audit matrix, which is kind of a series of guided questions for uh, anyone responsible for a planning team or an organization. Is this something that can be used by an individual? I mean, you say that they could follow the recommendations that would give them the most bang for the buck, but that presupposes that there are people out there thinking about how to present this hierarchy of recommendations. Right, right. Well, the, the the main kind of lesson that we have in the book, the main point we try to get across, is that um, that it kind of it starts that, that traditionally the way I think a lot of um, emergency management has gone is to sort of say, okay, this is where we want people to be. We want people to evacuate. We want people to have um, uh, to have emergency preparedness plans for their homes. We want people to have well-stocked first aid kits. We want people to be careful drivers, and and all these sorts of things. And basically, say that the way in which we tend to do it is to say, do it, okay, be a safe driver, um, stock up, and so forth. And, and the reality is that people don't do those things. Uh, and it's not that the people are bad or, or that they, they, they don't intend to do, want to do these things. It's just that we have our brains just really aren't, or, or aren't designed in a way that, that will naturally allow us to make those sorts of decisions. So our feeling is, is that the best way of going about it is actually to kind of do things in reverse and start off by thinking through what's, what is it about our brains that make it make these sorts of decisions difficult. And, and, rather, and given that we're not going to be able to change our brains, uh, what are things we can do to kind of redesign the environment or give ourselves little short-term incentives that can kind of target different biases and, um, uh, and, and allow us to overcome? Um, so the, the example of uh, the, the the checklist is one as given that we know that we're that people aren't going to do 20 things or, or are not going to check go through a checklist that has um, um, a large number of items on it. Um, design a checklist that only has one thing on it. Okay, and so that way people you're, people can think as they naturally would and um, and are led to sort of better behaviors. Um, 
another uh, bias that we talk about in the book is um, what we call inertia, okay, or uh, preference for defaults, okay. And what that is is, is that um, that often if we're kind of confused as to what action to take, uh, which almost by definition will be the, the case when we're thinking about uh, emergency preparedness or, or any kind of any ways of being safe, uh, what we have a tendency to do is kind of look for what's the 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 the, 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 the most natural or easiest choice to make. And usually if we're confused, um, that often means not doing anything. Um, Mm -hmm. So, for example... um, typically, what happens this is both for individual. This happens for individuals. It happens for communities at, at, at all scales. Um, we have a tendency to, to procrastinate. So, for example, um, uh, a great example we talk about in the book is what happened in New Orleans uh, just prior to Hurricane Katrina. Um, the year before, there was another hurricane called Ivan that was almost as strong as what Katrina was, and it was making a beeline for New Orleans. And, uh, and they ordered an evacuation. And, and when they did this evacuation, they immediately discovered that the city wasn't quite ready for it. Uh, and in fact, actually, the uh, and they, they said, well, maybe we can t- take all the people who couldn't evacuate, put them into the Superdome. And then the officials from the Superdome said, hey, don't send them to us because uh, we, don't, we can't house this many thousands of people for a long period of time. You've got to figure out something else to do. Well, it turned out, luckily, that, um, that the hurricane, Hurricane Ivan, swerved away and and, uh, and, and didn't actually um, uh, didn't actually hit New Orleans, and so everyone breathed a sigh of relief. And so at that point, you would think what the city would do is so to say, okay, now that we had this close call, why don't we go ahead and uh, and kind of fix the emergency the evacuation problem? The problem is is that there's so many different ways to fix it, and it's such a such a difficult problem to solve. Uh, when you know after you'd have discussion after discussion after discussion, the tendency is to say, well. I don't know, why don't we not do anything until we can figure it out, and we'll just kind of kick this problem down the road a little bit. And then, of course, what happened was the very next year, Hurricane Katrina hit, and then it kind of suffered from it. And there's this tendency, if we don't know what to do, um, and given the preparation decisions are hard, we tend not to do anything. So, so one of the ideas is to say, well, how do you solve that problem? Well, you're not going to get people to, to all of a sudden start being a, a different kind of a thinker. You're not going to remove that bias. That's just part of human nature to do that. But what we can do is imagine if we could design um, a choice environments where, where the, the, the default option or the, the inertial action is the safe option. So, for example, um, uh, let's say in an area where you, you're where you're in a, an area that's prone to flooding, and you're trying to decide whether or not to have uh, flood insurance, or you're in an earthquake, you're out in the in the, in the West Coast, and uh, whether in California, Oregon, or Washington, and you're prone to earthquakes, and you're not sure whether or not to have earthquake insurance. Chances are, you're, if, if you're unsure, you're not going to do it, okay? Because it's just it's too hard a problem to to flip to to, to solve. But what happens if we kind of do it the opposite? where everybody who has a home um, automatically, or maybe as part of their, their local taxes, automatically gets um, earthquake insurance, and it's sort of automatically paid for from your taxes, but you have the option to, to, de- to decline it. You have the option to say, no, 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 I don't want earthquake insurance. I would rather have the money. Well, in that case, you kind of flip things around. You haven't really altered people's choices. People still have the choice of whether or not they want to have it or not, but now the default choice is to get is to have safety, not and not not have safety. So with that, we're we're not changing anything at all. But all we're doing is is we're making it such that people are more naturally led to safer choices rather than unsafe choices. 
you made a lot of recommendations along those lines that involve really political and managerial decisions. Um, now, given our particularly our current political climate against further regulation, against the impinging upon our civil liberties by government of any kind. Um, do you, I, I'm really concerned that a lot of the regulations that have been put in place to protect the environment um, and so on will be removed because there is a cost attached to them. And we know that politicians are notoriously averse to increasing taxes. Um, how do you get around that? How do you reframe that conversation? Well, that's a that's a real challenge, and and I do think that as you indicated, we're kind of entering into kind of the zone of the unknown here with the uh, with the new administration, and you know who knows where we're going to be in uh, uh, in you know next month, much less uh, in, in a few years, and um, uh, and and I do think that that to some degree the um, uh, that one of the pro the problems that we have is a lot of times regulations are put in place, um, kind of recognizing that people, if left to their own their own instincts. Um, Will will not make necessarily make the best decisions. Um, uh, so, for example, um, um, uh, so 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 in our book, we kind of try to you know navigate a, a, a fine line between trying to give people as many opportunities and assuming that people should be um, free to make the, the whatever choices they want to respect make with respect to their own safety, but also at the same time, there sometimes people just are, are limited and they just are unable to make really good decisions about things. Which which lie in the distant future. Um, just in the same way with uh, when we're raising our kids, we just don't let them, uh, you know, we don't let little kids drive cars uh, and that sort of thing. It's because we just recognize there is that limitation. So, for you know, a good example where sometimes governments do have to jump in is, uh, is building codes uh, or safety codes, where if you let people build their own houses, um, people probably aren't going to build very safe houses. And we need to, uh, need to jump in and say, uh, say, look, you know, we really hate, we love to have you build your own house, but this is a situation where, like it or not, you're probably not going to do a good job, so we're going to put these regulations in place. And, and also, people don't have their own control over, over, over their houses, and so it, it protects them from, uh, um, from builders who, who are trying to cut corners and that sort of thing. So what, one of the concerns that, that we certainly have is that with um, um, that, that the, the worry would be a lot of regulations which are, uh, might be existing with respect to environmental protection and personal safety might be relaxed, uh, and then all of a sudden we have to kind of uh, go to a sort of a plan B in terms of how do we get people to um, th think of, uh, you know, around the edges ways of around the corners or back doorways of trying to get people to be, uh, be safe outside of the domain of, uh, of regulation. Um, I can, you know, if you, if you want, I can give you, you know, come of my own thoughts or some suggestions along those lines. Yes, indeed. Um, well, for, for example, one of the, the biases we talk about in the book um, is, this, is the idea of um, um, myopia um, and 
And what myopia is, is this tendency, we have this tendency uh, to focus on the near and uh, the here and now rather than the distant future. Uh, and I think that one of the, the, the big criticisms that, that, uh, that currently exists with respect to the current administration is that, it, that its approach to environmental policy is very short-sighted, uh, that there's very much a focus on um, what do we do to save money now, what are the things that we can do with the money that we have now, and not really thinking through, you know, what is it, what, what consequences is that going to have, that policy going to have into the long distance, into, into the distant future? Um, and uh, But it, it's also a thing that, that individuals have as a bias, that we tend not to be able to, to think through what the long-term consequences of things are. So, so for example, um, uh, one of the issues that comes up in, in areas that are, flown, that are prone to flooding um, is that one way you can get around um, the flooding problem is just Build your house higher. Okay, put it on stilts. Uh, so if floods do come, uh, then you're, you don't have to worry about it. The problem with that is, is that, it, it, or the same thing you can say in earthquake zones, like what are the things you could do to build a safer home? Well, you could build the home stronger. The problem with that is, is that that's very, very expensive to do, and, 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 and people are kind of faced with the situation of, do I, do I want to spend, you know, ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 today to help uh, make my home safer against a risk that might exist only 10 to 20 years in the future? And, and in the battle between the, 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 the the, um, the immediate versus uh, the distance and the, the future, the immediate always wins out. Um, so I'm looking at that ten to $20,000 check, and that's a huge chunk of money. And, uh, and it just really, and that's very, very concrete. It's very visible. It's very emotionally, very salient. And then I'm comparing that to, um, uh, to some disaster that might happen 10 to 20 years in the future. And it just, and that future thing, as severe as it may be, just doesn't seem very real. It just, and, and I'm, it's very difficult for me to imagine what it would feel like 20 years into the future if my house got destroyed. Uh, it just it just doesn't have the same ring. So as a consequence, there is this tendency to say, well, I don't know, it's just too much in the short run. Why don't we kind of defer it? So one of the things we talk about is um, is to say, well, um, that this is a case where insurance companies or the federal government, um, um, we can uh, finish this when we get back after break. So one of the the, uh, the the problem we were talking about was that people tend to be kind of short-sighted, and it's because of their short-sighted. It's it's one of the big barriers to uh, in putting in making investments up front in terms of building safer homes or taking any sort of action like that when the benefits from it kind of lie in the distant future. And uh, so in the example of say building safer homes for earthquakes, it's very expensive to do it, and the benefit lies downstream. And so as a consequence, given that battle between the short term and the long term, the short term always wins out. And people say, I don't want to spend the money, even though they kind of acknowledge that there's some benefit down the road. Well, this is a, it's a bad situation. It's, it's not good for the person necessarily to do that, but also it's not good for other people. So, for example, uh, that if they don't have the protection, then it's the government or taxpayers have to kind of pick up the pieces down the road if the house gets destroyed or, or the, the mortgage lender for the, for the, for the family. Uh, uh, suddenly now they're sitting on property which down the road, if the disaster happens, doesn't have the value that it did before. So in some sense, you have all these different parties, and they're all suffering because of this person's sense of myopia. Well, one way you can kind of fix that pretty easily is to say, well, what do we have if the bank really cares about what happens 20 years? Have a thing where, um, uh, where improvements to the house are spread out 
over time where the the bank gives you kind of a very very low interest loan to basically uh, to to, uh, to, um, to to make the house safer through structural improvements which spread the payments out over time so in the short run it doesn't seem like you're really paying anything for it and uh, yet you're getting the work done and and then uh, so then when the disaster does occur down in the future you're already well protected you also mentioned some initiatives by the government that kind of surprised me where the government instead of FEMA instead of paying individuals to rebuild their homes actually buy the lots out and encourage the individuals to rebuild elsewhere outside of a floodplain or a um, tectonic fault line so how yeah, this is, is a- that working <laughs> Uh, that's a good. That's a good thing. I, I think this is one of these things. Depending upon what, which school of thought you're in, uh, it's it's sort of. Uh, uh, I think some people would wish that there was a lot more of that going on, because um, uh, this gets back to the idea that sometimes uh, people just don't necessarily make the best decisions. Um, uh, for example, in one of the problems with uh, coastal development is um, all throughout both the Gulf Coast and, and on the East Coast, people build on barrier islands, and uh, and these barrier your islands where nature never made them to be in one place. Uh, they're, 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 they're just depending upon the way the currents are. They come and go. And also, as we're facing globe, uh, a, warmer, a warmer globe and uh, with rising sea levels, a lot of these barrier islands are going to be underwater and maybe, you know, as soon as 20, 30 years from now. Uh, yet people are building houses on them. And this just doesn't, you know, for a lot of people, this just doesn't make any sense. Um, uh, and what people need to be kind of uh, doing is kind of back into, is adapting to this new climate that we're facing uh, and don't build on areas which really are never meant to be built on. Um, and uh, so in some cases, the, 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 the government has had um, resources given to it that have realized that, hey, it's just a lot better for people uh, rather than to rebuild when their house was destroyed in a certain area, go ahead and just buy up the land themselves to make sure that people don't make the same mistake again. Um, and uh, now, unfortunately, how how extensively that that whether or not that's going to conduct those sorts of policies or that kind of mindset uh, will contribute continue into the the current administration is a is a big unknown at this point. Um, uh, personally, I think that the, the, those are are good decisions to make um, to to just make sure that there are areas and have them revert to parkland and so forth, rather than have people build houses there that are going to get destroyed. It's much better to do to to, to reclaim the land, but that's it's a very expensive thing. To do and and if there isn't the collective will by the um, by 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 the United States to to do that, then it's not going to happen. Well, we realize that it needs a kind of consensus or collective will. You're from one of the August universities in the country. The Wharton School of Business is very highly regarded. What are you and your colleagues doing in terms of future thinking to influence? Uh, the people, the policymakers who matter to take this seriously and to make the kind of incentives you're talking about available to change human behavior. Well, one of the things is we try to do is uh, one of the, the messages that we kind of keep coming across is we try to apply the principles of our own book or the principles to, to the way in which we communicate with politicians. And one of the biases we talked about before is simplification, that uh, if you give somebody 50 different <laughs> reasons, 50 different things, 
uh, yeah, they just again, so we just, so we kind of tend to focus on single messages, and uh, uh-huh. and I think the message that we really focus on in dealing with politicians is short sightedness. Um, that that if we could simply get politicians to realize, look, you need to look long run. That that um, uh, that there's this tendency to say that that well, environmental policies that restrict um, um, uh, that 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 allow people to kind of build whatever they want wherever they want to go, and and that don't control environmental emissions and all this sort of stuff. Uh, sure, it's good in the short run, but basically, you, you know, you have to be thinking long-run consequences, long-run. And then we try to attack it from different angles. Um, you know, off sort of the, the moral appeal to uh, to say, hey, you know, you should be thinking about future generations. Um, you know, sadly, as I say, that's not an appeal which necessarily uh, resonates very well with certain politicians. And so uh, so in that situation, you say, well, what, what's the metric that does matter to you? Is it money? Okay, well, in a lot of these circumstances, we are talking money um, uh, by going ahead and uh, and letting people develop, where, build houses wherever they want to build them, and so forth. Eventually, down the road, um, the government's going to have to pay for this. Um, you know, is there a cost to not for, for example, uh, climate change is something which is sort of dropped off the agenda of the new administration? And and our point in that is to say, um, say this is just economically it doesn't make sense to ignore this future threat because uh, you're basically maybe saving a couple dollars now, but you're basically uh, in, you're, you're giving future generations a huge bill to pay um, in terms of that they're the ones that are going to have to pay for the recovery as coastal cities start um, um, you know, you know, uh, flooding due to sea level rise. And these are massive costs that are down the road. And, and, uh, and, and one would think that even for the most conservative mindset, dollars and cents appeals you know, ought to be something that's worked. So we, we're constantly hitting on this idea of to try to think long-term, try to think long-term. Um, and, um, and, and then if we can kind of, if we can be halfway successful in that, we're kind of optimistic that we can, we can uh, forge a, 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 sort of a societal norm of safety that we all should be thinking about the future, not just thinking about today. Indeed. And you give a very good example of incremental steps that one could be taking now that would have the cumulative effect of really uh, providing us with protection down the line and, and spreading out the cost of payment over decades instead of having to deal with a disaster all at once. Right, this, right, this, right. And yeah, you, it, you talk about it both at the individual level and at the societal level. Yeah, and I think that, that most of the book is about small steps um, uh, that 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 we can think about little things we can kind of do at the margin. And the, the the theme that we keep coming back to over and over again in the book is this idea that that we should start thinking about the reasons why why we make mistakes and 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 kind of understand what they happen to be. And once we kind of know that we're prone to making these mistakes, um, then uh, and, uh, th- then we're kind of a, we're taking the first step towards making sure that they don't happen. Again, and uh, and accepting the fact that that big incremental changes are very difficult to forge. Anything that that, that costs people a huge amount of money, uh, they're just not going to undertake. And so we kind of look for things around the edges. Um, 
Um, like as, a, as an example, and we do a lot of the examples we do talk about are in the, the areas of governments and, 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 and policy levels, but we also kind of think of, of what are things that individuals can do and how can individuals become better self-psychologists in terms of their own disaster preparedness. Um, that, for example, the, the story that we tell to actually to start off the book is a, a tragedy that happened in um, during Hurricane Sandy in, in New York um, when um, a young mother was at home with their, their two small children and uh, her family, rest of her family, they lived in Staten Island and her rest of her family was um, away in Brooklyn and at the peak of the storm, uh, all of a sudden she became scared and she put both kids into a minivan and tried to drive them over to Brooklyn and they drove along a coast road and the, the, the uh, vehicle got, got stalled in floodwaters and she tried to take the two children to wade to safety to some houses she saw in the distance and a big storm wave came in and took both children from her arms, and she lost both children. Um, and I remember when reading that story, it gave me a great motivation for wanting to write this book and asking, what are things that we can do, or families can do, or societies can do, to make sure that tragedies like that don't ever happen again? Um, and in this particular case, for example, what happened was it was not due to the fact that there weren't warnings issued, and people were, were, uh, were being told that you don't go out in the middle of a storm, but nevertheless, what was happening was which she was behaving very human, uh, and it's a human instinct to to, um, uh, to to when you're frightened to flee, and and uh, and, and so I think that, that this is a type of thing. If the if the more that families knew that when danger occurs, that you are going to be prone to these instincts, and you can kind of anticipate them, think through um, um, what what are things that you can do or rules that you can be put in place um, that will make sure that you kind of override that instinct. And in this case, for example. Um, that maybe it, would, it might have been helpful if the if the government had been much more forceful in telling people, um, you know, at the height of the storm, do not leave, absolutely do not leave, and 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 have it at a level where she would understand that she's much safer staying at home, even if the, the lights are out, she would be trying to get into an automobile. Well, there have to be some wise heads out there making these policy recommendations. Um, it's interesting um, yeah, how you're... Yeah, and our hope is... is <clears throat> yeah, and, and I think our hope is... <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think that, that that's in some sense the reason why I said we wrote the book is to say to say look um, that that it, that in order for this to happen, you know, where is that wisdom going to come from? And I, I do think that that policymakers, the more they become aware of the of the the mental frailties of the people they're, who they're trying to make policies for, that they will make that they in turn will make better policies, and um, and also that they become aware of their own limitations that they they have in terms of formulating policies and thinking about people out there as being um, uh, different than what they actually are and, and more and, and so forth. Well, you're a good economist and uh, probably a better psychologist, so thank you very much for your wonderful book, The Ostrich Paradox. Thank you for being with us today, Robert. Sure thing. Thank you very much. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. We've been speaking with Robert Meyer, author co-author with Harward Kunreuther of The Ostrich Paradox. I'm Miriam Knight. Thank you for listening. Do join us next week and have a wonderful week. Goodbye.